Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and if you want to catch up with me on Twitter, you can find me at ILTM Podcast. I'm also on Instagram at I Love That Movie Podcast, and we have a Patreon. Um, the show is always free, but if you want to support us on there, you can at Patreon.com/slash I Love That Movie. And I want to take a moment to thank my top patrons, and they are Chris Balga, Jeff Woodman, Michael Cross, and Philip Barker. Thank you all so much for keeping the lights on. If you sign up for a Patreon, you do get a weekly bonus episode of all the shows I'm watching this week. So, for instance, you know, Umbrella Academy, all the DC shows that are going on right now, and just popular stuff that people are watching. So we have a lot of fun in there and that is available if you sign up. Uh, we also have a Discord and a Facebook group and we also now have an after party show. I guess the last thing I have to plug is my website. Also have I love that movie podcast.com. Um, and I want to introduce a guest who's been on my show before, but never to discuss a specific movie. So I'm very excited. Uh, please welcome Bart Weiss, who is the artistic director at Dallas Video Fest, a podcaster on The Fog of Truth, and many other things that he will tell you about right now. So thank you. Thank you. It's really glad to be doing this. It's a lot of fun. And it's nice to be on somebody else's podcast. So, <laughs> um, And it's, it's really kind of wonderful. And um, it's really great that you have people supporting you. I think that's really, you know, very important. Um, so, um, yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, at this moment when people are kind of um, stuck inside, having a podcast where you can talk about, you um, good movies and what people like about movies is a really great thing. And if you like documentaries, you can check out my podcast with my partner uh, called The Fog of Truth. And I think you had Chris, my partner, on that podcast a little bit ago as well. Yes, we touched on Do the Right Thing. That's what we discussed. Yeah. Really? I love mm -hmm. Do the Right Thing. Yeah, it was a great episode. That was, you know, and I think that was like my first time seeing that movie all the way through too. Oh, really? So it was a really, you know, great experience and incredibly timely, obviously, and yeah. um, just really good discussion. Yeah. Cool. So what do you want to talk about tonight? <laughs> well, actually, as you guys know out there, my guest picks the movie. So, Bart, what movie do you want to talk about tonight? Well, um, so, you know, sometimes you can talk about a recent movie or an old movie. And by the way, let me plug something if you don't mind. Oh, go for it. Um, so one of the things we do at the Dallas Video Festival, because, you know, having a festival is kind of difficult. Every Thursday night, we have something called Cinematic Conversations. And um, it's it's something on, on, um, on Zoom. And we pick a film a week, very similar to this. And I have a guest host, similar to you. And the <laughs> guest host 
picks the film that they're going to see. And we've done classic films. We've done contemporary films. We've done documentaries. We've done all kinds of work. And these go on for like an hour. And so usually for the first 40 minutes, uh, the guest host and I will talk about the film. And then the last 20 minutes, people can ask questions. And it's a really kind of wonderful thing. It's free. Um, if you go to the website for the video festival, that's videofest.org. There'll be information on um, on the ones we have coming up uh, this Thursday. Uh, we're doing a documentary called Flannery, and I've got the directors of the film on there. Um, and this is a really great film about Flannery O'Connor. And next week we're doing uh, 13th. Um, so um, so those, that's what we have coming up in that. But let's talk about an older film called Once Upon a Time in the West. And and Lisa, had you, have you seen this film before? I actually own this film. You own this film? Yes. Oh. I have the Dollar Trilogy and I have this film. But I have to give the credit to Kyle, uh, another fellow podcaster that had me on. And on his show, they typically just picked a movie mm -hmm. and then they watch it. So he hadn't seen it and I hadn't seen it when he picked it. Wow. Um, which was like, I think it was like a couple years ago. And so I kind of walked in a little blind. I had seen the Dollar Trilogy, but it was sort of, you know, where you see something that's playing on TV, like my dad's watching it or something, yeah. you know, growing up um, and hadn't really sit down, sat down and watched it. Um, so I kind of go in totally blind and just, you know, he and I just adored the movie after seeing it one time and I decided to buy it and I've seen it several times since then. So when you selected this, I was very excited to talk about it because I've never gotten to talk about it on this show. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it, aside from really liking this film a lot, is when I was uh, looking on Amazon Prime one day, I saw that there was a restored version of it which got me really, really excited. And, and um, you know, I've seen this film and I've shown this film in class many, many times. And the the picture, you know, it was a 4K restor restor restoration, was just so incredible. I mean, there are things in here that I've seen, that I saw that I hadn't seen before. Mm. And of course, when you think about this film, it, the rich visual tone and then is just amazing but also the music i mean it's kind of hard to imagine the film without the music uh, because the music is so kind of important of course you know that for this film the music mo the key part of the music was composed before they even shot so as they were as they were directing the uh, the film as the actors were doing it they could play some of this music in the in, wow. in in the background and the music is so it's like one of the when I first saw it, the first time I think I, re, I remember the first time you see the town Flagstone and you're outside of the train station and there's this whole thing about coming to town and there's nobody to meet her and then this 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 music is starting to swell up as the, the as the Camry dollies and cranes up and this town just is revealed at the height of this swelling music and it's just a beautiful cinematic experience it's like some things you you see but you feel that through your whole body it's like it's like cinema doesn't do that in that kind of way so much it's just so absolutely magnificent and when i saw it the first time it was like 
a 16 millimeter print that I saw in college. And that mm. did not exactly <laughs> have that kind of, you know, while it, it meant a lot and it worked really well, it was probably an optical soundtrack and the soundtrack was probably mono. And so it probably didn't sound all that good. But it's, you know, it's, it's obviously a memorable moment. And when I know it's coming, you just get very excited and you kind of then see it. But then, but then there's the beginning. And I can tell you that, um, you know, I, I, one of the other things I do, I, I teach uh, at the University of Texas at Arlington. And one of the things when I start to talk about what sound can do for a soundtrack, um, I saw the, the beginning of this film. And um, for those of you who've never seen the film before, um, the beginning of the film starts out um, where these, I think these are four bad guys, and they're really, really bad guys. They're just like really bad. Right. And they're at a train station, and this poor little guy is trying to sell him a ticket, and the guy rips it up, and they put him in a closet, and, and everybody is kind of freaked out. But the thing about this scene is um, there's, there's very little dialogue, and there's no music but the sound effects play like their music the the sound of all the things that are going on it's just this incredible composition of sound effects somebody that, actually in our group joked i think it was Stu. he said you should start the podcast with eight minutes of silence or something like that <laughs> to pay homage to this movie because yeah. you're right it, it really builds up uh through sound and not through a score and then the score also comes in and right. adds so much to the scene, but that that sense of you know dread that starts to build up. Um, I watched like a sort of a behind the scenes. I'll probably put this in our group, but um, you know the way that it starts off raising the tension, then lowering it dramatically, then yeah. pulling you back in. You know, it makes those quick moments and that's kind of a hallmark of a western is you know some people think of them as slow and this one in particular has a lot of slow moments but they're intentional because the violence is so quick and to really give it that big punch that impact that you feel it uh it, you've got to have that slow build and the the sound and the music is all a big part of that for sure i i think in terms of its the pacing i mean i think that that the music itself is it while it's not opera it's sort of operatic and it's it's very kind of slow and beautiful and it sort of dictates the sense of pacing and the thing about the violence and there is a lot of violence a lot of people get shot in this movie they do um and but what's really great when watching it is the anticipation of the violence like you know it's coming and you know it's like he grabs for the gun he holds the gun and so like in a typical film like da -da -da -da, boom but this kind of builds and builds and builds and that sort of anticipation of, of, of violence you know there are so many times when uh, when uh, charles somebody will say to charles bonson or charles say there there listen to that sound and then that sound that's and you hear the sound and then the violence happens it's mm -hmm. it's very sort of clued up again a sound cue and oh speaking of sound cues and how the sound um is very important after that scene um, you hear uh, when Charles Bronson, like all these, um, um, the, the guys are waiting, the train comes up, all these people come out, they can't find them, the train goes away, and you hear the sound of the harmonica. And the harmonica is this, you know, this musical cue that runs all the way through 
the film, and the, the Charles Bronson character who says very little but plays the harmonic and has the strapped around. And that's where you sort of hear it. It's the first piece of music you hear is the harmonica, which is a narrative device more than a piece of music, which is really, you know, incredibly powerful and, and, uh, and meaningful. And one of the other sort of narrative strands um, that runs um, throughout the film. Yeah, I, I like that you brought up this first scene, and I do want to remind everybody, I mean, I don't think it's a spoiler, you know that in Westerns people are going to shoot each other, um, but, you know, just know that we are going to talk spoilers. Um, and the the synopsis of this film is really quick. I mean, it's one of those things that you have to see. There's so much, so many layers, so many more things that happen that we'll talk about, but the basic uh, synopsis is just a mysterious stranger with a harmonica joins forces with a notorious desperado to protect a beautiful widow from a ruthless assassin working for the railroad. And uh, I'm so glad you brought up this first scene because uh, one thing that I was thinking about watching it, I think you and I had had a conversation recently when we talked about picking this film that I really like the Dollar Trilogy, but I actually like this film more and it's different in tone. It's a big yeah. shift uh, from that er those earlier movies. And in fact, you know, uh, Sergio Leone wanted... Clint Eastwood to play the Charles Bronson character. Yeah. Um, he's sort of also a man with no name, but I think even more, even more remote, like less backstory. We get to know him less. Uh, you know, the mm. deal with the harmonica is probably the biggest thing we learn about him, but he feels like a more evolved version of that Clint Eastwood character. And even these guys in this first scene, he wanted them to be, you know, the crew from the previous movies. Mm -hmm. And it, and so that when he like shot them, it's kind of like saying, you know, that's over. This is like a new tone. And also he gets injured in that scene, yeah. uh, which is different from the Clint Eastwood character. But that's different. The opening, like you said, is slow. Whereas in the Dollar Trilogy, it was, you know, really action filled and the music is exciting. And this is like a very somber, serious look at this genre, I think. And the violence even seems more realistic because there's so much buildup to it. It seems more chaotic. And I even saw a video that pointed out in the opening train scene, we see a native American yeah. character. Um, and you know, running typically, off. yeah, running, they let her go. Yeah. Um, but she, it's implied that she's like, you know, labor, uh, assigned to the guy at the station mm -hmm. and typically in Westerns, native American people were portrayed, you know, as, uh, villains. And in this movie, they're not portrayed that way, sort of as an innocent bystander or even a victim. And I think like that, plus the way that violence is portrayed in the movie is really different. It's like sort of a more, you know, modern look at that kind of that kind of landscape. And so, yeah, just everything about that first scene and what it kind of represents to me, I think it's one of my favorite moments of the movie. And, you know, it, when you speak, talk about Westerns, there's this whole sort of mythology about what, you know, the, what, what Westerns do for us it kind of is a sense of escape. When, when, when America reached the, the West coast, there was no, nothing else. And so the West, the mist of the West was that sort of frontier myth about who we are and what we could be. Now the, the outer space is what we kind of tend to think of as, as in terms of, so, so that's what the Westerns do. But in one of the things about this film is that what it's really about is sort of, um, 
what happens when the railroad sort of comes into the West? Because the, the, the narrative at its core, where all of those things you said are right, but what, the, what sort of starts this thing off and sort of ends it is about this, this small town that will appear in the middle of the desert because there's water there. And, mm-hmm. um, and it's all about the train transforming the pure landscape. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's a it's kind of this theme of like, you know, it, and it's there are several other westerns that sort of deal with it. It's like the end of an era, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and 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 so the, the what what does the the train sort of symbolize a a um it's you know it, it is progress, but with that co- progress comes a lot of evil. I mean, all the radio all the railroad people are, you know, not very good. The people building the railroad are great and they're like you know, they're, they're, but the, the, the people trying to, a lot of corruption is, is coming along with that. So the same kind of corruption that happens in the West with guns, it's just different. Yeah, no, I, I think that's an excellent point that, you know, the, the movie touches on sort of the lawlessness, the casual and, and chaotic violence. And, you know, you would almost think that the train coming in uh, would modernize and make everything better. But you see in the movie that it's like, an even bigger villain. Um, and, you know, it is the end of the cowboy era, but it doesn't mean that things are going to get dramatically better. Right. And yeah, I think, um, you know, any great Western or a lot of great Westerns, like you said, have something to do with a train <laughs> yeah. and the end of cowboys, I think. But uh, this one, I think, stands out um, because it does it just so, so well. Yeah. And, and in fact, the beginning of the film starts with a train coming in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I had um, like a couple of quick facts I was going to throw in uh, before we start talking about um, everybody else. But so I have three of them. So number one, I had that Henry Fonda originally turned down the role of Frank and Sergio Leone flew to the United States, met with Fonda, and he kind of explained, you know, what's going to happen. It's like, hey, picture this. The camera shows a gunman from the waist down shooting a child like, you know, that's so terrible like we know this is going to be a really bad guy then the camera pans up and it's henry fonda and you know it's like i don't know that people necessarily younger viewers may not realize what the gravity of that but it's like you know this person that represents or actor that represents um you know he's he's always a hero he's like represents like the best of americana but i think there's like something about him being that person and then having something to do with this train. And again, sort of challenging like the ideas about what we think about, you know, the frontier and like, you know, the train coming in and stuff like that. It's sort of shattering that, that uh, optimistic view of that, I think. Yeah. I, I, you know, the first time I saw this film, I think one of the first things it was like, what Henry Fonda is <laughs> a bad guy. It's like, you know, it's like, it's insane. I mean, if if you think about like the three main, you know, actors or like three very, very important, powerful Hollywood actors, Henry Fonda playing a bad guy, a really bad guy, an evil bad guy, Um, you know, in in just about every way he uh, kills, he tries to, you know, take money from his boss or, you know, betrays his boss. He try. he does all kinds of horrible things. Um, and, and, you know, again, for people who, who don't know, you know, he's been in like, 
he is the goody goody, you know, he is the, 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 the actor that just implies goodness. And it's like, if Tom Hanks was like the bad exactly. guy, he'd be like, no, my brain can't process this. Yeah. It's just a huge shock to the audience. And it's such a, a great moment. And I think he even tried to like wear brown contacts oh, or yeah. something like that. Cause he was like, you know, then he'll look like quote unquote, like more evil or I don't know. But the director was like, no, we got to keep like your signature look because that is what is going to sell this to the audience. You know, that's what's going to, again, this is something you haven't seen before. You haven't seen Henry Fonda like this and you haven't seen Westerns like this. And and then Jason Robards as as Cheyenne is also like great casting because yeah you know, I love him <laughs> you know it's like his character is 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 not quite bad and not quite good and you know very charismatic and it's got like most of the great lines in the film and um, you know he's kind of like a moral compass for the film and uh, whereas Henry Fonda is all the sort of bad things you know, in the end, he is always trying to do the right thing um, and trying to make sense of it. And then Charles Bronson, who, you know, is known for a lot of action movies, um, and but in a, such a different kind of way to have this role where he says very, very, very little. And, you know, he's not as tall as some of the other guys, but still is able to sort of have that sort of stature um, which I think is really, you know, powerful and amazing. I mean, and the three of them just do this. It's it's an incredible thing. And throughout the film and the way the script is written, that you know, the alliances keep moving around. It's like mm-hmm. who's for who, who's against who. And, you know, the first time you see it, you may be slightly like confused about what's going on or why are these people doing these things? But, yeah. you, know, you know, I think it's, um, it yeah, it's, this is a film that, that works on so many levels. Experientially, there is much sort of cinematic joy. It's just a visceral experience of a great director clearly at the height of his powers. I mean, after all of the um, um, uh, the good, bad, and the ugly and, and that trio, uh, um, he was able to get pretty much anything he wanted. And, um, and, and to use it in this way, to have this incredibly long and beautiful film that just keeps, you know, keeps making you want to see more and more for a long film. It's just, it's a joy to behold. And, you know, so the thing to do about this film is find somebody who's got a good 4K television. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And with a really good sound system and go over their house and watch it. (laughs) I agree. I agree. Until we can see it again in a theater. (laughs) Um, for the opening scene where the three dusters are waiting for the train. Yeah. And, and I just, I think every time I watch this, I think about it. So that's why I had to look it up. I was like, how did they get that fly <laughs> uh-huh. on Jack Ellum's face? And they used um, jam. Yeah. And so that's how the fly keeps coming back onto him over and over and over. But I just little tiny details like that. I'm like, how did they do that? Like, I love a movie that makes you think, how did they do that? <laughs> you know. So it's like, so what's going on here is in this beginning scene, which we've gone on and on about. Because <laughs> it's just that good. <laughs> the beginning scene is like a movie in and of itself. You mm-hmm. know? Um, so as these these bad guys are sitting there waiting, um, each one of them has their own sort of thing that they're doing while they're waiting. One of them has, there's, a, there's some water dripping, dripping, dripping from above. And he finally figures out if he puts his cowboy hat on, it won't sort of drip him. And uh, one guy is being bothered by this this fly that is driving him crazy. And um, 
at the end he sort of like gets it caught in his gun but but it's sort of like this whole sense of like build up and these bad guys are waiting for you know to take care of somebody and um you know it's yeah so it's it's a wonderfully beautiful um scene that then you know turns in so again just to finish out the scene so charles bonson comes and um and these guys were ready to leave they thought he wasn't there and then there's this thing about uh um, I see you got three horses and where's the one for me? And then the guy says, well, I guess we only got three horses. And Bronson says, well, I think you have two too many. <laughs> yeah. Such a great line. <laughs> I kind of, you know, my, my last fact was just kind of a little bit about stuff we've already talked about really just that Clint Eastwood was originally intended and then they wanted James Coburn to do it, but he didn't, he wanted too much money. Um, but I think the role going to Charles Bronson, I think you touched on earlier that he's like a little smaller. Mm-hmm. I also think he's like less cool. And, you know, like less handsome than Clint Eastwood. And for whatever reason, I feel like that adds a lot of weight to the character. Like he just feels so real. And so like him not having a ton of lines and him just sort of surprising everybody continuously throughout the movie. Like Clint Eastwood's so cool. You can just kind of imagine him doing anything. (laughs) And so I think like the way Charles Bronson plays it, and I feel like he's, I think you mentioned this too, like he's different in this movie Hmm. than in some of his other roles, uh, action roles, but I, I just love that character and I like the way that he he gets the, you feel like he could get the drop on people because he's surprising, you know. Yeah, he, they they both have this incredible intensity. Mhm. You know, they can look at you and just scare the bejeebers out of you just by looking <laughs> at you and not saying anything. I mean, both of them do it in a different way, but um you know, Bronson has less of a physical dominating presence, so he's there's a different kind of intensity, and and yeah, I mean, the casting in this film is incredible. Uh, Claudia Carnell is great in in you know and the role that she has, and there's also one of the other characters I just and it comes it was one of the great lines um, that I think was Henry Fonda, the guy who like works in that little store and is the one who's snitching on everybody. And, oh yeah. <laughs> and so there's this one line where, uh, he's, uh, guys telling him, well, you can trust me. And he looks at him and says, you can never trust anybody who wears a belt and suspenders. Yes. I love <laughs> that line. <laughs> he can't even trust his own pants. Can't yeah. even trust his own pants. <laughs> That's a good line. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I love Claudia Cardinal or Cardinelli. Is that how you say her Cardinal, name? I think is what it is. Cardinal. Okay. Claudia Cardinal. I like Claudia Cardinal in this movie. Um, I mean, she looks incredibly gorgeous. Like she almost like doesn't fit in the movie, you know, comparatively uh, to everybody else. She just really stands out. And, uh, but she plays the character, even though she doesn't have a ton of lines. And even though I think she's kind of limited in the movie as a character, I think that she brings like a presence that I think is unique for that type of like, you know, uh, sex worker with a heart of gold kind of trope. (laughs) But I feel like she's very nuanced and I don't know. I just, I just can't stop looking at her every time we watch the movie. And she's one of my favorite parts of it too. Well, in in a sense, she's sort of like, um, did you ever watch green acres? 
Yes. <laughs> it's been a while, but I remember that joke. But so you have, you know, Zsa Gabor, like yeah, in the middle yeah. of like no place looking mm-hmm. really beautiful. And for that show, <laughs> um, the most expensive item in the budget was her wardrobe. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, but in this film, in a sense, she is um, represents the city, which the railroad is also bringing in. And, and the sort of like the gut of the story is really about like, you know, it really comes when she enters town. We talked about, you know, Charles Bronson entering. And Bronson, although, like, he's so critical to the story, he is almost superfluous. Like, all these people are after each other, and he just has his own um, an own different, different fight. But she comes in there looking for, you know, her husband, who she secretly married um, and was, you know, coming to this rural world. And then, you know, it comes there and it's it's not what she had thought bad things happen and she has to redefine her life um and um yeah i think in a sense that to me is the sort of core the essence of the story all these other things are the fights that happen sort of around that yeah i like the fact that the plot of this movie is it's sort of you have to unwrap it in layers because once you get a full picture uh towards the end, you know, she left her life in the city, like you said, and really not only was she leaving her life, but this was like a chance to completely reinvent herself um, Mm -hmm. and her, her status in society. Um, And she comes there and she's, you know, agreed to, to marry this man and raise these children. And then she gets there and it's, it's all gone. But then the second part of that is, She's already married, which I feel like is, you know, when that when you find that out, you're like, ooh, the plot thickens because, you know, later we find out that not only were they killed, but it was for a really specific reason. And she's the one that pieces together that I think when she's first coming in, uh, the guy that brings her in laughs and says uh, that the land that he water has, sweet water, or what, what did he call it? Sweet water, yeah. Yeah, sweet water. He's like, there's nothing there. Like, I can't believe he bought that land. It's so crappy. Um, and then she discovers that he was going to build a train station there. Yeah. Um, and so that's what's going on here, really. There's like a conspiracy. The family was killed to get him out of the way. But since she had already married him, now they have to contend with her too. Um, and so that sets in motion like a lot of new things that happen. And I don't know, I just kind of like that it's not really like a mystery, but all the pieces kind of slowly fall into place like one almost. It's multi, multi-layered. And, and yeah. speaking of that, one of the things that's also kind of interesting is, um, you know, the the, the husband, uh, Brett Bain, I think is his name. Um, he's, he's basically in a couple scenes in the very, very beginning of the film and gets shot. But because he figured out that water would be available there and the train mm-hmm. was going through there, it's like everything that happens in the film is because of what he did. And he doesn't make yeah. it through the first half hour of the film. That scene with uh, with his family and, oh. and the buildup to that, too, is just so intense like the first time you see it you know you meet him you meet his kids he's talking to his kids again kind of like the train station and even though i guess we forget (laughs) as we watch it the first time like hey we should kind of be anticipating something bad's about to happen here when we get to know characters in this movie something seems to happen to them but you know we learn about kind of about his family they're preparing for like a big wedding they're setting a table and Mm -hmm. all that is going to be just like completely dashed in the next few minutes and again, I, I think that's such a, a brilliant part of this movie of completely catching you off guard with 
with the the movie's violence and you know with the direction the whole story is going to go in because i think they set him up like we're going to be getting to know this character for the rest of the movie yeah and getting to know a bunch of characters yeah the other thing is there isn't a single character that carries this movie yeah that's true they're all kind of part of something bigger uh than themselves yeah absolutely um what else should we talk about uh, do you want to talk about, I think one, I guess leading up to one of my other favorite scenes with the, uh, that kind of iconic lantern swinging into the shot and revealing Charles Bronson's face. Oh, and, and that whole, <laughs> like that was that location in this, like, I don't even know what it is. A little kind of core where they like, you know, they're, there's cattle inside and there are people doing laundry, but the lighting in that place is just really incredible. It's like this is mm-hmm. an incredible location because, you know, people have light or inside of light and shadows and the sense of space is just really, you know, um, kind of fascinating. But yeah, it's a, a very typical kind of thing when Cheyenne uh, meets the man with the harmonica and they have this intense dialogue. And at one point, like he's in the dark and he just kind of shoves this this lantern into a a close-up and again it's like brilliant visual storytelling which you know of course is what Sergio Luna does you know he's the master of the the wide shot and the ultra close-up the sense of how how landscape affects the world and how the faces of the people affect the world those are two sort of really important things in all of the films it's you know sort of a key to a sense of visual style you know that the wide shot and then the person's face comes into it with a you know good bit of a hit of a music in there which you know makes us feel like something very very powerful and film students all over the world have tried to copy that (laughs) for sure and i think too like so many frames just look like a painting you know it 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 literally looks like art the shots are beautiful they're very hard to capture i've I think I remember watching like a breakdown of that scene and how difficult it was to light it. And also, like you said, it's kind of different from other Westerns where it looks more like somewhere they would actually be in instead of, you know, a lot of times on Westerns, it's a set and, you know, for obvious reasons, but this, it kind of felt like you were let into their world, like a little bit more intimately in that moment, I think too. Yeah. Um, Maybe we should talk a little bit about the uh, the the boss man on the railroad. Oh yeah, it's just <laughs> you know kind of an, an amazing thing. So you've got Henry Fonda playing Frank, this really bad guy, but Frank works for this other guy who's also a really bad guy. Right. <laughs> he you know works for the railroad, makes a lot of money, um, and uh, but what's really fascinating, he he exists on a train. And, yeah, he doesn't ever really leave the train. And because he's he's uh, a handicapped person. And, um, you know, the only way he gets around the train is he's got either a crutch or he's got these these um, these poles in the top that he can let lets him move around. And throughout the film, he has this vision of being at the West Coast. He has a painting of the um, Pacific Ocean. And like what he wants is to finally get to the Pacific Ocean, which is, you know, a dream that he never realizes. But Wooder does have something to do with his ending. And I'll leave that there for your imagination. Yeah, because water has a lot to do with the plot, too, because 
Yeah. They're there because of the water. And then he's fantasizing about the water. And then, yeah, there's a, a big moment that it's leading up to. I also think like watching it a second time, um, he is really the the main villain. I mean, Henry Fonda is really bad, but he's only doing what he's being told to do. So in a way, he becomes like an extension of him. And he's sort of like a face that he can point to and be like, you know, I my hands are clean. This guy's doing it. So I kind of like that aspect of the the villains in the story, too. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting about this is um, so Henry Fonda observing um, what his boss does, like uses what he's learned to turn against his boss. Mm hmm. Um, so, and, you know, he, he, he knows the world of being like, you know, a typical Western or a gangster and that's the world he lives, but he's trying to move up into, you know, I think Henry Fonda realized that living the life that he's doing has an end date, but if you yeah. can learn how to be the boss, then, you know, life is better. And, you know, sometimes when you double cross the boss, you win and, and sometimes everybody loses. And I think the boss is directly responsible for his turn because he kind of, you know, uh, puts him down and, and talks about and points out that he's above him and that he's going to go further and he couldn't do what he's doing. And like that kind of sets him up for that big betrayal later. He sort of created a monster out of Henry Fonda. I, and I think in a sense it, it was inevitable. Yeah. Because, you know, somebody like the Henry Fonda character is very ambitious. And once you sort of learn what's going on. So I think the boss sort of knew that was coming and tried to put a kibosh on it and didn't do a very good job and even tried to get, you know, Henry Fonda's uh, henchmen to, to uh, turn against him. And that did not work out particularly well. Yeah. <laughs> as, as is the case. Um we really haven't talked very much about the flashbacks and Mr. Harmonica. Oh, yes. S some amazing flashbacks. Yeah. Great backstory. Um, he doesn't get a ton of backstory, but the backstory he gets is very satisfying in this sort of revenge plot that the Harmonica character has. And, you know, just we, we've given a lot of spoilers away. We should <laughs> not give this one away. Okay, okay. Let's just, just, just say that throughout the film, there's this out of focus wide shot of somebody sort of walking towards the camera. And sort of every time you, you hear that music, at some point you'll come to this flashback. But the payoff is worth it. Yeah. And I think, you know, we know that the character is good because he's got that white hat. Um, but at the same time, I feel, I felt like the first time I watched it, I was really unsure of like his motives. Um, yeah. and I think they, they really play with that with the Cheyenne character too, because I think when you first watch it, you're like, oh, Cheyenne's going to be like his main bad guy. But then later, you know, it's Henry Fonda. And then you're kind of like, well, are they friends? And then they kind of end up as friends. And like, there's a lot of sort of playing with people's, you know, motivations, like you had mentioned earlier. So, uh, when you finally find out Charles Bronson's real motivation, mm. it's just such a great payoff because you've kind of been kept off guard the whole movie, wondering what that is. Yeah, yeah. And all of those scenes where he's just throwing out names is are great. And I'm not going to tell you what that means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like after you finish the movie the first time and you go back to the very first scene, because I don't know about you, but the very first time I saw this movie and those, you know, those three guys die in the beginning halfway through the movie i'm kind of like 
what did that have to do with this? Like, what did that first scene have to do with the movie? And then you don't really get that payoff until like the very end. Right. And, and yeah. it is not, I mean, the, 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 that, the harmonica man is, is the bookend of the film, right? Mm-hmm. It's where the, the film begins and, and it really is a sort of the dramatic climax. I mean, something happens before that, but narratively, um, but it's not the main part of the film. It's like, it's not the main driver of the film. Um, but the film has a lot of things that are constantly evolving and shifting. Um, but it's very, um, but it, it's very visually satisfying. Yeah. I think, you know, he, you're right. It's not really centered on him, but getting that end cap at the end just kind of ties the whole movie together in, in a different way than you're expecting it to. Cause I think like you're looking forward to like his big standoff with whoever he's going to have a standoff with. And he does do that, but it plays into like a bigger plot, like you said. Yeah. And then there's that scene where um, uh, the Henry Fonda character, Frank is being, um, uh, being ambushed by, well, we won't tell you who, and Charles Bronson, who is like um, standing uh, standing across the way and can see where the bad guys are, like helps him get away, even though he, this is the guy he's after. So it's really kind of interesting how um, how that whole scene plays out. It's a big I, the first time you're watching, you're like, "What is going on here? Why is this <laughs> happening? Why is he doing this?" And and the the, the key thing to think about with Charles Bronson's character is nobody knows what he's about. Right. They People don't know him. This isn't like some of the other movies that we've seen Sergio Leone do where, you know, characters know each other and they're like, hey, remember me? And like, we have a history. And, you know, that's not really happening in this movie at all. Um, He's truly coming in uh, with no one knowing him and no history. And you're trying to just figure him out the whole movie. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, okay. So they come in the first three guys, they don't know what he's about. Like, yeah. Who are you? They're like, who are you? We're just coming to pick you up. <laughs> and then um, Jason Robards, uh, Cheyenne, he doesn't know who he is. You know, that shot with the light that you're talking about, who are you? What are you doing? You know, what you, you know, then with the whole thing with the gun, it's like Cheyenne can figure out like everybody, know everybody else in this world knew who Cheyenne was. Everybody who knew who Frank was, everybody knew who the owner, I mean, all these other characters were known to each other, except for Bronson. He is a mystery to everybody. He's a mystery to, uh, uh, Clary Carnell. She, she's like, she has no, I, she just like, she, she totally knows who the other people are and what they represent, but she can never figure him out. Yeah. There's that scene. Okay. I had a question. So, and kind of going along with not really understanding his motives. Um, she, I think, you know, she really has uh, Cheyenne figured out yeah. and she knows that there's an outside threat. And for a while it feels like, you know, Cheyenne's getting close to her and then yeah. there's this outside threat. And so you're like, okay, I get that. But then harmonica comes in and you're kind of like, okay, wait, why is he here? Like, what does he have to do with this conflict. And then he sort of like attacks Claudia, like he's going, to, like he's going to assault her, but then doesn't. And then he tells her to get water and that's to draw someone out. But I wondered what your thoughts on that were. Why did he attack her in that moment? Was that just 
narratively to throw us off or like what what was his motive in that moment do you think well i think i think what that whole story is about that part of what's going on is that um that he knows that Frank's people are coming, which is why yeah. he says to go out there. So what he's trying to do is set up that moment where they can have the confrontation. So because nobody else other than Charles Bronson knows that Frank is going to be there, Cheyenne doesn't, she doesn't, he's trying to influence that moment and set it up for the desired effect that he's trying to get. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, and so, and and there's sort of a trope with you know the relationship between Claudia and Charles Bronson in this movie. That's like a lot of uh, Sergio Leone's westerns. It seems like the strongest thing a, uh, the macho like male character can do is not end up with the woman in the end. So <laughs> I think that's kind of funny as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, she ends up with nobody, um, mm-hmm. and um, and you know, it's like one wonders ten years from now, twenty years from the end of the film, you know, what her life is. She's she finally has financial stability and the ability to create something and to build a city, and you know, what does her life uh, become? Um, which is really kind of um, fascinating. I mean, it all kind of revolves around her and her journey but she's very peripheral to the action. Yeah. And they kind of, I think they mess with expectations in the movie because like there's times where, you know, Cheyenne keeps bringing up his mother and uh, that she was also, um, you know, a sex worker. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. In the same business. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, you know, that, but that she was a wonderful woman and, you know, like just setting up like, Oh, he sees her differently than other people do, but she's not attracted to him. So that's not going to work out. But then they kind of set up that she's really interested in Charles Bronson's character. But, you know, typically in these kind of Westerns, uh, the Cowboys got to sail off into the sunset. So that's not going to happen either. But I did kind of like that. They tried to humanize her character a little bit more which i feel like is a theme in the movie in general like even the the bad guys in the first scene that we keep going back to um showing them you know in mundane circumstances makes their deaths more you know dramatic and i think getting to know her and having her be a little bit more nuanced makes you know we feel for her a lot in the end i think when she has sort of like a a good ending um she doesn't end up with a guy, but that's fine. I think, I, I think mainly like her life really did dramatically change for the better. And you're worried about her. I think, even though she is kind of, like you said, on the outside of the, of the main plot, I think I, I at least I felt deeply for her at the end and was glad that she was doing okay. Very much. And also felt my sense was that um, Cheyenne, Jason Robarts had the best relationship with Claudia. I mean, the two of them really had a kind of connection over her bad coffee. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that they understood each other more than anybody else. Yeah, it felt like they were very much of the same like world. Yeah, you know, um, they don't really fit into this newer modern world. Um, I guess kind of like the way the Henry Henry Fonda character is too. I felt like Henry Fonda with the bad guy, you know, or his boss was kind of like, "You're not going to fit into like this new world," and blah blah blah. And there's sort of a theme of the character sort of not really fitting into the more modern train era. 
Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, John Wayne and the searchers yeah. leaves at the end in that mm-hmm. very, you know, the very powerful scene, you know, that, that these, these characters who transform the space to transform the world don't get to live in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They get kicked out of the garden of Eden before yeah. they get to eat the fruit. Yeah. But at least she got that station in the end. I mean, we don't know what happens next, but yeah, I mean, I think of, of if you think about like at the end, she's the only one. I mean, uh, Charles Bronson is still going to be Charles Bronson. And if you think about it, so much of Charles Bronson's life was about revenge. I mean, it's the only thing that he thought or cared about. What do you do after you've got revenge? Yeah. Well, what's his life going to be like? Jason Robards, well you know uh henry fonda i mean who's left that has a life except claudia yeah like and and she kind of like in that ending scene where she's giving everyone oh maybe i didn't i don't know maybe you don't want me to say that part that's okay that's okay (laughs) okay that ending scene where there's all the water and she's literally like passing out water to everybody it's um, that water thing again. Yeah. It's like, and she's kind of like, I don't know, like a motherly figure. And I think Cheyenne, you know, he hinted about uh, his mother. And so I think that sets us up to think about that again at the end. And she's kind of like this matriarchal presence at the end, taking care of everyone. It's like, I don't know. I just think that's such an optimistic and kind of happy ending for a Western. Yeah. That there kind of surprised me. I need to say here, and I need to ask okay. you about this. Okay. So what does Cheyenne talk about when you go out and see those men? Do you remember? If they happen to go out there and take care of them? No, or? no. We just go out and take care oh, of them. Before okay. that, he says, and if they slap you on the butt, just don't say anything. Oh, yeah. He's like, they've had a hard time. Don't say anything. And Yeah. So- as a woman, how do you feel about that? So in general, uh, and I, I always kind of go there in my episodes because, you know, I've got I've got thoughts on it. Um, but I, I think, yeah, with Sergio Leone's style, women, female characters are generally like not super important to the plot. They're kind of, they have limited dialogue. They're, you know, again, the test of like an extremely manly man is to look at this incredibly beautiful woman and not stay. Mm -hmm. Um, So she's always kind of left alone. And I think that's why Cheyenne is so like, Oh, I love you. And then by comparison, you know, Charles Bronson's character seems so much cooler because he's immune to that. Um, So yeah, that whole thing. And, And also centering a lot of sympathy around a female character. For some reason, they're almost always, are in the same line of work she's in, mm-hmm. but then the movie makes a big point about, but guess what? They're human. And it's like kind of outdated to, ha- to say that. Uh, and yeah, he's basically like tolerate um, harassment <laughs> essentially, but you kind of have to put it, I think in its time, not even just, not even in the sixties, but also in the, the world that she's in. Mm-hmm. And so I would say to that, that, for the world that she's in, I think she's really interesting and um, and very street smart, and she plays each scene very well. But I think what he's trying to get at is that um, that there's something good underneath all that. I think that's what he meant by that. Kind of like him, there's something 
deeper and sensitive under his exterior um, and under his mother's exterior and under her exterior. And so Mm. telling her to sort of reach into the humanity of the people in her town, I think that's what it meant. But yeah, in a modern, under a modern lens, you're like, that's not necessary (laughs) for her to tolerate being accosted, but yeah. And then, um, so you mentioned it was, it's film was came out in 1969. Yeah. And one of the things one should always do when talking about a movie from the past is think about what was going on in 1969 and what is the sort of political context and social political context. Um, because, you know, stories are always about where, what the time frame they were made in, even if they're about some idealized past. And if you think about like 1968 is a year that's not too different from from now. I mean, with with a, a lot of riots and um, burning down of cities, and there was a lot of uncertainty in the world. Um, it was, um, you know, 1967 was sort of the beginning of the flower children in San Francisco, and a lot of people challenging, you know, the traditions of the past and um, course there were people who were maybe using altered substances so there was this kind of alternative um, culture going on so it's there was a kind of social upheaval of the time and the structure and um, you know of course the Vietnam War and all of that so in the context of that going back to that sense of the the train in the west and what that means I think kind of resonates to kind of differently yeah I can definitely see that. And I wanted to point out, too, with her as an actress, I had read that she, you know, well, there's a lot of interesting things about her. Like, number one, um, she had signed a contract when she became an actress that forbid her to cut her hair, marry or gain weight. Uh, And so because of this, she told everyone that her newborn son which was out of wedlock was her baby brother and she didn't tell him she Mm. was her he was her son until he was 19 so that i think really speaks to the time and you know like expectations about you know what she represented in her public life and also she ended up kind of stepping out of the limelight Mm. i mean she still did film but she left hollywood and i i think one of the quotes i had read was she didn't want to become a Sophia Loren and that she felt Sophia Loren was like exploited in her image and she didn't want that to happen to her, which I think is like really interesting uh, for that time because that's almost like, you know, being a pinnacle uh, sex symbol is like the top of what I think a lot of female actresses thought they could achieve and for her to kind of take a step back and be like, you know, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm interested in something else. Um, when she's so known iconically for how she looked, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, and and you know the other thing about about that era, nineteen sixty nine, it's it's when Hollywood starts to lose its 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 power. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, with Easy Rider and a lot of other things, all these low budget films and all these independent filmmakers starting to come along. Before then, you know, you could have a situation where you sign somebody to a contract. I mean, very soon after this film, none of those contracts would exist anymore. Uh, gotcha. Yeah. And it's just like, so I don't know. So it's like when you think about her character and then also like the the things that she was like held to 
and then her stepping away from that and then like her character kind of stepping out of that. Like, I don't know. I just think that's kind of a neat thing that happened parallel to it. So I, I really like her character in the movie a lot. I, I mean, she looks like kind of bond girlish. (laughs) That's what I thought of when I first saw her, especially with like the eyelashes. She doesn't, she's not styled like, um, the old West, but none of them are. I mean, that's another hallmark I think of Sergio Leone that, I mean, his look has become so iconic now, but I think people forget, like, there was a time when his movies, you know, people that liked the older Westerns, the original Westerns were like, what is this? Because, you know, it was very fashion forward. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't like, uh, it wasn't historically accurate. He went for things that looked cool and had impact and were artistic and the music Mm -hmm. is artistic. I mean, it's so, it's such a different take on Westerns before this time period. Yeah, I mean, his vision of a Western is a very different thing. There's also a kind of political undertone to all of his uh, his, his films and 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 what they meant, and um, you know, very different than the way traditional westerns were photographed. Very different than the kind of music that they used and the way that they were used, and the kind of themes that westerns had. And I think all of those, you know, were solidified. So so. Having spent a good amount of time talking about this, and we certainly talked about uh, some of his early films, um, what did you think of Once Upon a Time in America? You know, I don't think I've seen that movie. Well, it's it's, it's <laughs> bomb it, drop. It's a very good it's a very good film, but a very 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 different film. You know, it's an American gangster film as opposed mm-hmm. to um, with very sort of similar th- themes. Um, but very, very different. Um, and, and um, you know, when you talk to people, you know, you'll ask them, you know, what's their favorite Sergio film? And some of them will say the good, bad, and the ugly. I, I still believe that this is the, the, the most interesting of them that, that stands above the others. But some people like, um, I've had discussions with some people who thought Once Upon a Time in America was his best, which I wouldn't necessarily agree. One other thing I wanted to talk about before we we, we uh, close up and I get to have dinner um, <laughs> is um, um, the the set pieces and the art direction is just absolutely magnificent. Um, and again, in the restoration, there are some of the scenes where the the extras, like when when she first gets off of the train, and you see all these people in the background doing all these things that the worlds that he creates were, were just visually extraordinary. And, and for a while I was like, you know, not paying attention to the character and the story, but just kind of looking in the detail of all these people that were, you know, getting water, moving horses, moving people around and, and different kinds of communities. There were, there were African-Americans and Asians and, and, um, and Latinos. I mean, all these people, these like just working, doing things. And it was all choreographed incredibly beautifully. I mean, this is a choreographed Western film. It really is. Yeah. I think, um, you know, nowadays there's a lot of people my age and younger, I think it's changing, but I remember hearing a lot growing up, people saying they didn't like Westerns and that they felt they were, you know, old school and, they just weren't that interested. Um, and I think that, I don't know. I sometimes I've thought a lot about like, why is that? I think some of it has to do with what you're talking about right there, where there's not this appreciation for 
I mean, the amount of blocking that has to go and staging that has to go into a scene like that and the way that landscape um, and background almost becomes like a character in Westerns. It's a big part of it, like big expansive spaces and um, framing and setting that up. I, I, I think that you know, under a modern lens uh, in filmmaking, people think of that as like, oh, these movies are slow and, you know, looking at these long shots and I, I don't know what to focus on. It's like, wow, I just feel like we've lost something in between, you know, the time that this was made and now where we're so interested in like fast cuts and action and, uh, you know, close-ups. And we lost something when we moved away from things like this. Do you agree? Well, I, a couple of thoughts on that. First of all, I think the thing that sort of, I think, turned people's interest away from Westerns was Westerns being on television. But mm. There were a lot of gun smoke and um, all these other things. So Westerns became like a major thing on, on television. And those didn't have like high production value. And right. so they were not as evocative as they were. And there was, I mean, there was a, a Western a few years ago. Um, what was it? The, the, the five, ten, the, 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 what was the name of that film? Five, ten to Yuma. Yuma. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so Westerns come up every once in a while, but it, again, it's like, what is the role of the Western? I mean, cause it, it is the, it is the, the rugged individual facing the world. Um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the elements and the elements of nature and the elements of the worst of mankind, the, the, the bad people and, and battling those. And those are, you know, kind of, kind of constant, but it's, it's like, what is the West? What is the unknown? I mean, the West were wide open territories where the where the normal rules didn't apply. In right. a small little town, the sheriff couldn't necessarily control things. And and so where are the spaces in the world where there are these wide open spaces where anything can happen? And I think that's that's the sort of allure of the of of of, of the Western. It's, it's this mythology of the tough guy man who comes and tames the world. Yeah. I think that's slowly evolved. I've, I've heard people say, you know, Star Wars kind of came in and yes. <laughs> ruined that. Um, and I, I mean, the most recent thing that I've seen that reminds me of an old Western is the Mandalorian, which is, you know, yeah. even with the intro music is obviously heavily influenced by this. Um, and and even you know shows like Westworld and it, there are ways to tell it, but it does seem like consistently um, newer versions of this tend to be science fiction. And I guess because kind of like you're saying, we're thinking of like, well, what else is there to explore? Well, right, you know, right. space, right. And and I didn't quite articulate this before, but the, the, the theory was, and this is what I learned back when I was in college, that that, that the myth of the West was about that there was a space where if you were you know, like sitting in a big city and everything was crazy, you could dream about the wide open spaces where, mm. where a man could be a man and was not subjugated to having to wear a suit and work on a machine and like do nothing all day and could dream of this world where a smart person with using their wits and their strength could do things. When we go all the way, when the trains go all the way to California, which is interesting illusion within this film, then the myth of the West is gone. Right. And, and so it is indeed, as you said, outer space. I mean, Star Wars is a Western. Yeah. 
it's a Western. I in mean, aesthetically, everything. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it draws on them. And, and, and you know, the, the filmmakers who made that and many of the other things were very keenly aware of the tropes of the Western. And, and you know, they, they have gunfights, except the guns are not guns. They're bigger things. They, they, they run with the same kind of narrative stories, the same kind of pacing. I mean, they, they are Westerns in outer space. Yeah, and I would say if, you know, you've kind of never tiptoed into this genre, I mean, well, this is like the best of the best, but it's a great place to start because I think that Once Upon a Time in the West is a very, a very modern feeling movie. Like when you watch it, 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 I don't know, it just, the, the look of it, the style of it, and, and maybe that is because of things like, um, like Westworld that draws so heavily on literally the white and black hat motif and many other things in this film um even henry fonda to me kind of looks like uh what's his name ed harris oh yeah you know like there's a there's a lot of stuff going on um except in that version oh i don't want to say it's a spoiler but (laughs) there's a charles bronson character too um there's an interesting connection between ed harris and okay anyway you go watch that show and then you'll know what i mean but um I think that that can kind of help people sort of dip their toe into this genre because this is one that I was kind of weakened, to be honest. Um, I I sort of didn't really take this world seriously of the West. You know, I didn't really grow up watching a ton of Westerns. And so I've actually had to go back and and watch a lot of really great ones like the Dollar Trilogy, this one, you know, uh, Rio Bravo and so many other great films. Um, but and I would but also, yeah, I think it's a good place to start. I would recommend if you want to sort of dip your toe in this, uh, The Searchers is oh, is, yeah. um, is an incredible, incredibly powerful epic. I mean, it has its own kind of political issues, but visually in terms of performance, I mean, it, it is um, just a masterful piece of of cinema and uh i I would say that's probably one of the best i I would say the the searchers is one the epitome of one kind of western Mm -hmm. and once upon a time in the west is the epitome of another kind of western both of them are very sort of meaningful powerful films that speak to what america can be and is and perhaps should be or shouldn't be yeah well this brings me to my last couple of questions and we kind of already touched on this. In fact, we spent all this time talking about it. But if you had to summarize, why do you like this movie so much? And why do you think you've seen it so many times? Well, I mean, we talked about so many of the uh, narrative issues um, and the stories that are really good. But I, I guess to me, there are more like powerful, visceral moments, cinematic visceral moments that I just that it make me feel good. It's not just like intellectually good. I through your body, these, these scenes that are so masterfully done. It's, it's like seeing a great master and, and sort of appreciating all those, those wonderful touches, even though, you know, this line is coming, like seeing it and appreciating. It. It's just so absolutely magnificent. It's not like there are any specific scenes, any characters, but it just, it's like film done really, really well. And, you know, so often films are nice and good, but very rarely do you have this kind of experience in in cinema. Yeah, I completely agree. I think, you know, it's a theme on this show of me saying that a lot of my favorite movies, we kind of talked about the pacing earlier and, uh, 
there's a lot of movies that I really like that people go like, oh, I think that movie's boring. I think it's too slow. I, you know, you have to wait a really long time for things to get going. Um, and basically, if you think that, I probably love that film. <laughs> and I think my biggest message to people about a movie like this is that, you know, there's there's a reward in waiting. And I really feel that movies should take time. They should immerse you. They should give you time to process and think about and then lead up to something and let the director uh, kind of, or the filmmaker kind of show you where he wants you to go um, instead of speeding through the narrative. So I think that this movie is perfectly paced. It's, you know, a masterpiece and I think you should give it a shot. Even if you're not really into Westerns, like I keep saying, I think it's time to dip your toe into this and to give it a real chance. And I guarantee that after you see it the first time, you're going you're gonna to want to see it again because I think it's a film that really rewards multiple viewings. I feel like every time I see it, I see something new right. and you know it just enhances the experience for me. And I know some people say things like, you know, I only want to, I don't like seeing a movie over and over. Well, I can't agree. I think that the mark of a good movie is one that you can revisit over and over and that you get so much more out of each viewing. And so any movie that can live up to that for me, you know, kind of gets a special slot. And I think this movie has that. Well, yeah, I think that, that when you re-see a movie, you get to see the first time through the experience is mostly about the story. Like what is going to happen? Yeah. What's going to happen to the guy? Why did he do that? What do we find out at the end? There's this narrative hook that sort of drives us through. And the second time you get all these themes that you did just sort of missed. Oh, that connects to that. Oh, the water connects to this. Oh, that connects to that. And you kind of appreciate it on a different level. But there's one other thing that I think it makes multiple viewings of a film really powerful we're not the same people we were when we saw it the first time that yeah. when you watch a film, it's like an intersection of your life with a director's life. It's like kind of rolling out in real time. And the person you are later, the things that you know, the things you care about, the things that are important to you shift. And when you see it the next time scenes play differently because of who you are. I, I completely agree. Um, that's why I, I love covering movies that people really enjoy, that they really love, because typically they have visited something multiple times. And usually, like you said, the movie sort of changes with you or, or the movie changes you, or I don't know, both things are happening, I guess. But you're a different person, like you said, after you've seen it uh, several times, you, you view it in a different way. And by the way, one last thought. Um, so when people complain about that movies move too fast, too many cuts and all of that, mm -hmm. most people blame MTV for doing that. <laughs> I don't. The problem was Sesame Street. Oh, really? This is an interesting theory. I'm excited to hear this one. <laughs> well, if you think about it, you know, what was children's television like before Sesame Street? Uh, okay. Okay. Like Mr. Rogers. Yeah. And, and, and just kind of slow and, you know, uh, uh, it just was kind of, it wasn't very fast paced. If you look at, go, go back and look at Sesame Street, there's one thing and another thing and another thing and another thing. It's very disconnected. It's like they have a little bit and it sort of finishes and another little bit and it finishes. And, and it, and it, and the pace of, of, of the way Sesame street set up kids for how new narrative information would evolve. 
set the world for a place like music television, MTV, where things evolve really quickly. Growing up on a diet of Sesame Street wouldn't allow you for seeing something that runs very slow. Gotcha. Yeah, I, you know, and I do want to stress there are many good new films being made. I just always cringe when someone says that a movie is too slow because I'm like, you know, maybe it's not. Maybe it's just that we've changed how we view film. Um, and, and I'm a big believer in that. So I don't know. I was definitely raised on Sesame Street. So somehow I fought back against that programming, I guess. <laughs> but there, there are like studies that show that there are more cuts in a film and, and shots are on for shorter lengths of time. I mean, this is like, yeah. like, like you, you can look at graphs that will show you this and, and right. has definitely evolved. And I mean, now it's like the, the bigger problem is watching things at home. You know, it's like people will like turn it off and like check an email. And, oh gosh. I'm really guilty of that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know. It's, it's, it's hard to stay focused and, you know, unplug and just really, watch something that's a challenge it's actually part of why i like doing the podcast because then i have to <laughs> you know it's like the culture when i when i um started watching films seriously in college it's like you would go to the place and you would watch films and then you know af after you know getting involved in the film world and making films and watching them there, there were times when when repertory theaters like the granada theater in dallas were like, and there was a theater like that in every city around the country, and they would have a seven o'clock and a nine o'clock classic film or indie film or or something like that. And everybody you knew on their kitchen, had in their refrigerator had like the monthly schedule for what was playing at the at the repertory theater house, and it was a cultural phenomenon that people would go and watch a Renoir film or a Godard film or, um, you know, whatever was, was on that schedule. And, 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 and there was a coming together of culture. So, so they were viewed in a different cultural context than, um, than, than that. But on the other hand, we were watching crappy prints and, um, nowadays like the, the visceral experience of seeing once upon a time in the West on a 4k transfer on a really good television with a really good sound system is probably better than when I originally saw it. A better experience of what the director wanted because the colors are more vibrant. There's more detail that I can see and the sound is clearly much better. Yeah. It, it's an interesting trade-off and especially right now, you know, before this all happened, my biggest thing was trying to get people into the theater to see these movies and we can't yeah. do that right now. So it's kind of like, what does the future of that look like? Well, um, yeah, that I guess is, we'll see. That's a story yeah. for another day. <laughs> right. I agree. <laughs> well, Bart, thank you so much for coming on uh, to talk about this movie with me. I've, you know, like I said, it's been on my list of like, I hope someone picks that movie because that's one that I really want to dive into. Well, great. It's been a great joy. And um, thank you for getting people to talk about films, because I think that's something that's it's sort of lacking. We don't have the same kind of film criticism we once had. So, you know, things like this are getting a chance for people to think more deeply about what's going on in a film. For sure. And where can people find you? Uh, well, I live in Oak Cliff. <laughs> um, so uh, the, for the festival, videofest.org is our website. And if you go there and if you want to, if you're living in the Dallas Fort Worth area and you just want to know what's going on, what films are being shown, what events are happening, what you should know about, 
every Monday I do a newsletter and I tell people what's going on. So you can, on our front page of videofest.org, scroll down to the bottom and sign up for the newsletter. You'll be happy you did. If you just take my word for it, you will enjoy it. Um, and then, uh, you know, I have Facebook, I have Twitter, although I never go to it. I believe I have an Instagram account, but I never really post to that. <laughs> you know, old people use Facebook. Uh, what can I say? <laughs> it's a lot to keep up with. I find it challenging to, to be on all the social medias. So I advertise all of them, but I try to be on there as much as I can, but it's kind of hard. You start spreading yourself thin after a while. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Well, thank you. And you're going to have to think of another movie to, to come back and talk about because we, we've got to do this again. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, there I have a lot of favorites. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. We could always do Citizen Kane. I mean, I think all film oh, features have to talk about Citizen Kane. That's true. We did do that movie, though, already. So I have to pick. All right. So one. People know mm -hmm. what Rosebud was. <laughs> they do. They have learned from my podcast what Rosebud means. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Thank you.